And I'm convinced that uh, Golden Crest only put out discs that had surface noise. <laughs> I've never heard a copy of either of the Kleiner LPs that did not sound like a part of the mix was a microphone and a bowl of Rice Krispies. <laughs> Greetings across whatever you listen to things on. This is the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent films. Hi, I'm your host, Ben Modell. I'm a silent film accompanist and historian, DVD label, piano tuner, video editor, Etc. Etc. And welcome to the the episode. This is actually episode thirty eight. We're posting on July eighth of twenty twenty. And the only reason that's happening now and not December is my co-host and co-producer, Kerr Lockhart. Say hi, Kerr. Hi, hi, Ben. How are you doing? I'm okay. I'm, I'm hanging in there, and glad we're doing yet another show. And thanks for keeping me on schedule and keeping me on track. For, for years, the only feedback I would get is when I'd go to a festival and people would come up to me and say, oh, I love the podcast. So if you're listening and like this, do go to Apple Podcasts and post a review. It helps other people find out about this. If you know somebody who might enjoy this, do spread the word out. Kerr, why don't you let our listener know <laughs> what they're in for today? We're talking about the use of designated songs that actually uh, are referenced on screen and we're also going to be talking about the use of the cue sheets that were issued with the films when they were originally distributed particularly from the mid-teens through the 20s and uh, how that figures and it seems like we're also kind of sneaking into the fact that here it is it's July we're still mostly inside and you seem to be adapting to the virtual world. Yeah, I'm I'm doing my darndest and trying to make this, make this all work. The silent comedy watch party is now in episode sixteen or seventeen, and I I can't believe I've done that many episodes of it to the point that a lot of it is just really it's really become a routine. Uh, but it's it's been really great. People are really enjoying the show. Classic images published an article in their July issue written by Bob Tevis all about the watch party. It's, it was really great for them to take notice of it. It's now at a point where it just kind of works. Well, I think one of the keys is that you have now created expectations. And meeting expectations is kind of our subtext today. The whole idea about using an existing piece of music is a component of trying to understand or be aware of what people think they're going to hear and trying to meet that in a way that satisfies the viewer or audience without setting off road flares about what you're doing. So performances we're going to hear today, The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse and a performance at MoMA in the street for the Metropolitan Museum and talking about the online performance of Steamboat Bill Jr., so a little more Buster Keaton again this week. There's a lot of approaches today to accompanying silent film that was not true 40 years ago. There's a whole school of avant-garde scoring oh, or yeah. of uh, contemporary film style, I would say, film scores that sound like Vangelis or Marauder. Yes. People are doing yeah. all these different 
alternate takes that are anachronistic. And it's a question of, is your audience looking for the experience of being in a film 1922? Or does movie music to them mean chariots of fire? Both ends of the spectrum can work. There are definitely people who will say, I don't want to hear that boring classical music. So much of it, I think, is about the scoring technique itself. I've seen solo pianists not do a film proper service, and I've seen a punk band from Finland, a group called Cleaning Women, do a really, really good score. So it's really a matter of how the musicians are speaking with and to the film and, and back and forth and dialogue I, with I, the film. Yeah, I think so. And then there are a lot of traditionalists who are like, oh, I hate this group and I hate that group. It's okay. You, you don't have to go to their show, but there's an audience for that. And, and the reverse is also true. Like I said, there's definitely young people who just, oh, the, that guy's playing the theater organ. I'm not going to go to that show. But they both bring in people. I've, I've encountered a number of people who uh, have been at a show I've done. I've chatted them up after the show, and they've said the first time they had been to a silent film show, they can't remember who it was, but there are three guys, and one is on a, on a keyboard, and they had this big rack of metal. I said, oh, you saw the Alloy Orchestra. Yes, yes, yes. And there's some people who are not wild about what they do, but you know, they do good scores and they sell tickets to silent film, which I think is, is just as important. So I'm on the side of silent movies. So if you make a show happen and get people in, whatever you're doing gets people past that word silent, it's, it's good. So our first film brings up a kind of music that is much older, but it had a huge vogue in the 80s and 90s, and that's tango. Tango goes from true folk music from the bars of Argentina to very high art with Astor Piazzolla and similar composers. It's turned out to be a very rich genre for something that had such humble beginnings. Yeah, yeah, the composer that I really like is Ernesto Nazareth. Oh, yes. His stuff is really, really nice. I tried <laughs> I tried learning to play one of the pieces <laughs> once. But yeah, and there was a big fad for it in the early 20s especially. So I played for a show, The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Which takes place in Argentina, we should say. Yes, and then enters World War One. This is a show I did at, at MoMA during the Iris Barry retrospective in the fall of 2019 that Ann Mora film curator there had put together the museum of modern art has an has a nice 35 millimeter print it's a film that it in many ways put mr valentino on the map so there is a sequence at the beginning where he goes to a, a cafe and and dances a tango with a young woman there and it's an interesting 
moment uh, just in terms of the way it's shot because it's it's a full dance it's not like he does eight bars and then they finish and they go into a scene and they're also to my eye over crank not over cranking but they're not cranking as as slow as they are for the rest of the picture i think we ran the film at 20 frames per second a lot of times with silent films uh, you'll have a musical number and nobody compensates by cranking a little faster so the dance doesn't look quite so frenetic but in Four Horsemen, it did really look to me like once he starts dancing, it's a tempo you can follow. And that's what I, I tried to do. My eyes are glued to the two dancers' legs, trying to stay in tempo with them. And luckily, there aren't a lot of cutaways. This is the one, one of the things I noticed also with silent film, is a lot of times if there's a dance number, the, the cut, you, you cut away and then cut back. And if, if you hold the tempo you're off because there's no consideration for that it's a there are a couple of really long sustained takes and so what i'll try to do i'll fluctuate the tempo to just so if i get ahead i can pull back and i'll put a vamp in for of a bar or two maybe where it might not go musically but because of what's happening on screen we need to pause musically for a second before moving ahead sometimes i second guess myself and i think am i trying too hard to make this sync up is it going to be too distracting? I don't know, but but I know that if I don't sync it up, that's going to be distracting as well. So what you'll hear in this clip, it's recorded on November 26th of 2019 in MoMA's Titus II Auditorium. You'll hear the sequence where the tango is danced, and I'll go out of the tango th- mode and then back into it. You'll hear the fluctuation of tempo and the insertion of a vamp or two here or there. So this is yours truly accompanying on piano, the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City.
live in performance on a Steinway S Baby Grand at the Museum of Modern Arts Titus II Theater in November of 2019. Yours true, making his way on piano through the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That piano belonged to Blanchette Rockefeller, believe it or not, back when the films were shown for about two or three years at the Gramercy Theater on 23rd Street. And it had been rebuilt inside and out by Steinway and refinished and everything. You hear me playing some tango. It's not a tango you know because I made it up during the show. The question sometimes in my mind is, do I write a full tango or do I try to create one during the show? And this is something I taught myself to do in in terms of improvisation is trying to create uh, a piece that sounds like it was already written out, the same 16-bar structure, while also being available to shift in terms of the chord progression if we're 12 bars into the phrase and something else happens or we need to pause for a moment while there's a close-up of Rudolph Valentino leering at the woman and then we go resume the dance. For anyone, especially if you're starting out accompanying silent films, you may be playing a piece and the scene ends and you may want to finish the piece, but don't. (laughs) (laughs) The scene is over and you need to find a way to resolve it ahead of time and finish with the scene and move on to the next thing. It isn't a concert, and and as much as you may want to honor the piece of music that was written, you're supporting the film, so wrap it up in time for the scene to end and move on. I wound up playing for Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse twice, once on piano and once on theater organ. They're two different animals, the two instruments, and one's a little bit more orchestral. Plus, with the the theater organ, you have the tambourine sample as part of the toy counter, and so I'll bring that in. Just because I can't. I know it's a little hand wavy to throw in a, a sound effect, but until there are enough people who are used to knowing, oh, this is something that a theater organ does, I'll probably keep doing it almost as a seasoning here and there. Well, I also uh, think that would be helpful, for instance, for the tango, because the organ might not be yeah. able to give the rhythmic pulse. It just adds a little flavor sometimes. So it was nice to have the opportunity to play the film on two different instruments for the two the two screenings. The advantage, of course, with the organ, especially at the last couple of reels where the actual four horsemen show up riding through the sky with the smoke and all the, all the effects and everything. You can really just floor it because what's happening on screen kind of asks for it and just really hit all the reeds and the pedals can get a lot stronger and just you can really get a lot of oomph that you can't get with a piano. Yeah, we think with piano you, you get to its maximum force in production pretty quickly and I would think with most of the case with the organ there's always something in reserve. You can certainly get up to 11 at some point. <laughs> I'm Eric Anderson. I, um, I watch uh, Silent Comedy Watch Party from uh, Salem, Oregon. Uh, I have it set up, so I actually watch it live. I try to do that every week and keep that appointment. Um, run downstairs to my TV room and uh, have a second cup of coffee or maybe third and, and watch it. Um, I actually live uh, on my own. My father lives nearby here in Salem, but uh, you know, due to uh, circumstances these days, um, Keeping socially distant, so I think my appreciation for uh, this this hour every week or hour or so is uh, 
that connectivity with folks uh, around the country and around the globe from the sounds of it. Uh, a couple hundred people all watching at the same time. It's, it's that feeling of connectivity that we quite often don't get um, these days when we're not able to go share movies and other experiences as a, as a group. Um, it, so it's me and my dog, Ranger, who uh, ends up watching it every week. He truthfully you know, dozes off a bit. Um, but you know, one of the things I really enjoy the most about the opportunity to share you know, the knowledge that Ben and Steve uh, and Mana um, bring to the table every, uh, bring to the show every week. It's uh, that mix of a little bit of familiarity, you know, names I'm familiar with, along with uh, these new names that um, in some cases I just find kind of interesting and I'll have to, you know, make a note of it. And in some cases I'm jumping on immediately and buying DVDs afterwards, uh, looking them up. Uh, I'm in particularly was impressed with Charlie Bowers when um, the uh, Model T started to come out of the eggs. Um, when you see that kind of that kind of special effect and that kind of imagination on the screen, a uh, hundred years old, it's uh, it's illuminating. I mean, it's uh, you just want to learn more and more about these folks and see their work. Well, from that extremely symbolic drama of the Four Horsemen, our next piece is extremely realistic. We're talking about kind of proto-verite filmmaking and silent filmmaking from after the silent era. The film we're talking about is In the Street, made by Helen Levitt along with Janice Loeb and James Agee, whose name may ring a bell. Helen Levitt, if you're into photography, is probably best known as a street photographer, this film was completed in 1948. It was filmed with two amateur home movie cameras that run at 16 frames per second in 1945 and 1946 on the streets of Spanish Harlem, mainly on 104th Street, and uh, assembled by Levitt into uh, a complete work. There's no overall narrative or story. It, it runs about 19 minutes. It's just images of people who she found in the street, kids, adults, people interacting with one another. This is another in the series of films that I'm getting to score for the Metropolitan Museum of Arts YouTube channel and online postings. There's another one that will be out later in July that is a visit with the artist Child Hassam and his home in East Hampton. In This Street was something that the Metropolitan Museum wanted me to score for July 3rd. They had contacted me about doing a score for the film and knew that it circulated with no score, but also there was another recorded piano score. And I was already really familiar with it because the score that was recorded for the film in the 1950s was composed and performed by Arthur Kleiner. Let's talk about who Arthur Kleiner was. Arthur Kleiner was the Museum of Modern Art's first silent film accompanist, and he was playing for movies at the museum from 1938 until 1967. He was hired by Iris Barry to come in and play for about three weeks, and it became a full-time occupation. He had his own office with a piano and file cabinets full of music in it. He was playing two shows a day because when the museum began showing film in the late 30s, it was predominantly silent film, and he was creating scores every single day. During the Iris Barry series last fall, I really wanted to commemorate Kleiner's work because nobody knows his name, nobody knows what he did, and 
gosh, he was there full-time for almost 30 years. I don't think anybody was working as a full-time silent film accompanist in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, and 60s. So I pitched the idea to Anne Mora that I wanted to do a one-off program about Arthur Kleiner. And she loved the idea and worked with me on it. She was able to go through a lot of the museum's papers and found a whole bunch of stuff that I couldn't find online. There's a lot of his music and photographs online that have been digitized. A special collection at the University of Minnesota, which is where all of his stuff went. But there's a lot of stuff in the museum's paperwork, MoMA's paperwork, that was very, very interesting. And I also was able, I got in touch with one of Arthur Kleiner's sons. Here we were paying tribute to his dad. He didn't know a lot about his dad's work at MoMA, but helped me with some things and had some information and sent a really nice photograph. That was the hardest thing, believe it or not, was finding a really nice photo <laughs> of Arthur <laughs> Kleiner. One of the other challenges was finding a recording of a score for a silent film that he had done. I absolutely couldn't turn anything up. There was a series that was done on public television that Eileen Bowser put together that Arthur Kleiner did scores for in, I guess, in the 1960s of films that had been found and preserved by the museum. But, no, of course, you know, none of that tape exists. There are some reel-to-reel tape recordings in the collection in Minnesota haven't been digitized. All I could really turn up was in the street. And so we ran that as part of the program running it double system, which is how it circulated, where you would get a print, and in the 60s and 70s, you'd be given an audio cassette of Arthur's track. What we had was a digital file of it, and a print, with we ran at 16 frames per second, we ran the two things side by side. So I knew the film from that screening, and we were talking, me and the people from the Metropolitan Museum of Art were talking about, do we just issue it? In Dead Silence, do we run it with the Kleiner score, or should I create a new score for it? Well, the Kleiner score is, I wasn't sure if they were going to need to clear it. And also, I do know that In the Street is already on MoMA's website with the Arthur Kleiner track on it. And so, the decision was made for me to, to create a new score for it. So, it's been posted online the Metropolitan Museum's site. They're doing a series called From the Vaults. And while you may not know that the Metropolitan Museum of Art has a film collection and a film archive, they do. And uh, a lot of the films were either made by the museum or were acquired by the museum, films that are about art and architecture and sculpture and stuff like that. So In the Street was a film that was in the collection and wasn't made by the Metropolitan Museum of Art. But it was something they wanted to showcase. And so my challenge was, how do you score a film that has no story whatsoever? I've played for films that are actualities, and I've played for films that are documentary films that run 20, 30 minutes or closer to an hour, like the polar exploration films I used to play for at the Silent Film Days Festival in Tromsø, Norway. But there was still a thin overall storyline with those. There would be long stretches of scenery, but the whole film is the explorers get on the boat, there's a ceremony, they wave goodbye, they launch, they go out in the ocean, they see whales, they get stuck in ice, they get off the boat, they play with the sea lions, they break up the ice, they move ahead, at the end they come back to shore and the film is over. But you have well, chronology the street, there. You know, there's some kind motion. of a beginning, middle, and end, and whereas in the street, it was like an exhibit of street photography, except that they were moving images strung together. And at first glance, it doesn't look like there's any connection or, to them or rhyme or reason. But I, I, as my filmmaker brain kicks in, I figure, well, 
she had a lot of footage. She must have had something in mind when she assembled it. There's a title crawl at the very beginning of the film stating that life in the street is itself like theater and that the people you see there are poets and people wearing masks and dancing and having conflicts with one another and all that stuff. And as I watched the film again, I began finding these little moments. Some of them were in individual shots and they were groupings of things where I would know, okay, for three minutes, this is all kids playing or here's a brief sequence with two elderly women and their dogs. What I wanted to do was avoid reinterpreting the moments for the viewer. I'm not really sure how effective it was, but I tried to strike a balance. The other half of this is meeting audience expectation. It's not a quote-unquote silent film. It is a film that has no sound. It's somebody going out with a, a, a Cinecodec Model K movie camera capturing life. It's very difficult to watch a film in complete silence, especially one that's 19 minutes long. And especially one which has no internal connection. Right. So you have to help an audience decode it. It was a really interesting challenge because there isn't really a lot to decode in terms of story. But you don't have to worry about historic musical genre at all. So that's a liberation. Yeah, I, I I didn't try to sound like 1948. This is one of these things where also something else happens during the recording process. I set up the video projector and I watch the film nice and big and the images come into my eyes and brains and music comes out of my hands. I'm almost unaware of a conscious choice of what's happening. I'm like, oh, this is good. I was aiming for the human moment that I was seeing and not mirroring anything. You see kids running around. Maybe I'm not going to play kids skipping around music mm-hmm. or the dogs. You play dog music or or whatever, but just enough to make the music occupy your ears, but without telling you this is what's going on. And so this is something that's streaming on the Metropolitan Museum of Arts website and on their YouTube channel. This is a few minutes from my score, recorded using Steinway D samples for Helen Levitt's film from 1948, In the Street.
recorded through my laptop using Steinway D samples. That's yours truly playing a few minutes for my score for the film In the Street, made by street photographer Helen Levitt in 1948. And that's something you can find online at the Metropolitan Museum of Art's website in their From the Vault series and on their YouTube channel. And it was an honor for me to get to not only score this film, but a fun challenge as well to create a score that I hope works and helps people enjoy the film that was made and is being offered up by the museum. Another interesting thing that turned up in my search for things about Arthur Kleiner was a film called Hollywood's Musical Moods, a documentary that he wrote and hosts, and it has footage of Arthur Kleiner speaking. He's got this thick Viennese accent, uh, but you see him play and hear him play, but he also interviews David Raxon and talks with him about scoring modern times with Chaplin. Raxon is he, uh, most famous for Laura. Among many things, yeah. And he talks about working with Charlie and Kleiner visits with Chauncey Haynes, who's a theater organist who played the premiere show of the Gold Rush in 25 and talks about Chaplin leaning over his shoulder and telling him what to play and what not to play. He also, in the piece, interviews Domenico Savino, who's one of my favorite of the mood cue composers. Just for the footage alone of these composers whose are just names to a lot of us, it's a really interesting film. So look for that link on the notes page for this podcast. Yeah, yeah. The Silent Film Music Podcast is brought to you by Undercrank Productions, home of the neglected and unexpected in classic film. When Knighthood Was in Flower was the lavish super production that established Marion Davies as a first-ranked movie star. She plays Mary Tudor, whose brother Henry VIII wants to marry her off to Louis XII to cement a political alliance. The film also features William Powell in his second film role ever as the villain, and the lavish sets of Joseph Urban, designer of the Ziegfeld Follies. Restored by the Library of Congress with recreated tinting and hand coloring, a theater organ score by Ben Modell, a 16-page illustrated booklet, and DVD and Blu-ray copies in a single package. So Ben, Marion Davies is hardly one of your obscure slapstick comedy stars. How did this film get onto your radar? In 2010, six pallets of Ernie Kovacs videotapes and kinescopes arrived at the Library of Congress. And so I spent a week down there helping Alexis Ainsworth go through these pallets. I was also looking for things to release, and I screened when I was in Flower. And at the end of each role, I was like, wow, why do we not know about this movie? The production values are amazing. The the acting and the performances are, are great. The storytelling is really great. It was really compelling film. And so I just took an interest in getting this released on DVD and Blu-ray. DVD Talk rates it highly recommended, calling Ben's score excellent and summing up a grand spectacle from 1922 when Knighthood Was in Flower is a top-notch film that showcases Marion Davies' talent and what Hollywood could accomplish when money was no object. The print is excellent and the score entertaining. You can find When Knighthood Was in Flower at undercrankproductions.com, Amazon, Deep Discount, Movies Unlimited, Oldies.com, and just about anywhere you can purchase classic film. When Knighthood Was in Flower. So, Ben, while we're on the topic of when knighthood was in flower, 
there was pre-existing music that uh, you did incorporate in your score for that and for Little Old New York. Am I correct? Actually, it was music that was commissioned for the release of the film by William Randolph Hearst. Hearst commissioned Victor Herbert to write these pieces. Going to Victor Herbert is like hiring John Williams today. I mean, he is such a towering, important, number one composer. For When Knighthood Was in Flower, Hearst commissioned a Marion Davies march and a waltz that is called When Knighthood Was in Flower. And both were published as pieces of sheet music that you could buy as a way to promote the film and also the success of the film and popularity of it would sell sheet music. Alice Mott of the Victor Herbert Society came to my rescue and sent me a scan of the Marion Davies March. The roadshow program for When Nighthood Was in Flower shows that both of these pieces were played, one as, an over, as part of the overture and one as an on-track to the film's second half. And Roadshow is the full 12-reel version of the film would be released to big houses and you'd have an orchestra and uh, either a cue sheet score or a completely written out score. And then a few reels would get knocked out of it and there would be a general release version that might be nine reels. There was a program, a printed program like, like the size of a magazine, that had all the credits in it. So the film itself opens with title cards that show each actor's name and who they're playing, but you don't see who's the director, who's the camera operator, who's the art director, all that kind of stuff. So I created titles based on what I saw in the program. What worked out for me is that they fit a couple of scenes in the film. Uh, Give an example of how something fits. The waltz, it works as a love theme. I don't use it that many times, maybe three or four times. There's this processional that opens the film's second half. And all the townspeople are gathered. And they come through on carriages. And the Marion Davies March sounds like a big processional. So I used it there. Our next film is something you must have played for dozens and dozens of times, Steamboat Bill Jr. That's nothing new. I can imagine I could wake you up at 3 a.m. and say, start playing Steamboat Bill Jr. And you could start doing it. But uh, you had a new twist on it. Yeah, this was an extension of what I'm doing with the Silent Comedy Watch Party. I've been doing a monthly silent film series at the Cinema Arts Center in Huntington, New York, since the end of 2006. And I accompany, I co-program it with Dylan Skolnick, who's the co-director, along with his mom, Charlotte Skye. Dylan emailed me and said, hey, you might be fun to try to do something uh, with, with a feature film that's live streamed out of your living room the way you're doing it with the comedy shorts. Like most art houses, they're trying to find a way to keep their patrons happy, to, to keep getting the art house cinema programming out to their patrons. And since we do offer a silent film every month, the idea was let's see if we can find a way to carry that on. And after doing a test with a William S. Hart film, where I live streamed from my living room to uh, maybe about 25, 30 people 
and I knew, okay, this will work with the Mimo Live software I'm using. I told Dylan, hey, guess what? It works. We picked Steamboat Bill Jr., and I think we got around 140 people to tune in. It was a similar format to the watch party. You know, I greeted people. Mana panned down from the wall down to me, and I said hello, and I brought in, instead of Steve, I brought Dylan Skolin again on a split screen, and he talked about the cinema, and I put some images up, up on the screen of it. And then we did we did Steamboat Bill Jr. for the people who were watching, and this was something that was not available to the general public. Ticketing was done by the Cinema Arts Center, and the way they're doing it, at least for this first show and the new one we're going to do later in July, is it's free or pay what you wish. Once you register, they send you a link to, to an unlisted link on, you, on my YouTube channel. And then at precisely 7 o'clock Eastern Time, we go live and I greet people. And it's just done live, and I take it down. It's a uh, completely so, unique product that the museum or the art house can offer. Right. A lot of festivals or cinemas are doing things where they're quote-unquote live streaming something, but it's really something that's been pre-recorded. But this is actually live. So at 7 o'clock, me and whoever else is watching, they're experiencing my score, which is happening live in my living room, going out to them. And now, one of the things I didn't want to be careful about, YouTube's lovely algorithm can sometimes snag things that it thinks are under copyright. I didn't want to get into hot water in the middle of the film, and there is a piece of existing music in Steamboat Bill Jr. It's the Prisoner's Song, which Buster sings in the jail cell and pantomimes the whole thing with the bread. The Prisoner's Song is quite possibly or probably a folk song. However, in 1925, a guy named Vernon Dahlhart had a hit record with it, which is probably part of why it was on Buster's mind and they created the gag. And he also knew that the audience would, would know the, the tune already. I had someone to love me, someone to call me their own. Oh, I wish I had someone to live with, cause I'm tired of living alone. But there is this dispute whether the song itself is actually under copyright or not. I did not want the stream to get yanked or flagged right before the windstorm. So what you'll hear is a few minutes of my score, and it's in the jail. It starts with the sequence where Buster has arrived and says he has bread for his father. And at some point, you'll hear me go into a sound alike of the prisoner's song. But wasn't it just in case YouTube's algorithm or, or, or whatever it is that YouTube has set up where a third party can say, hey, I own the rights to that and put ads all over your video. So you'll hear me do that and then move on uh, into the rest of the scene. And this is performed live, like I said, in my living room on my acoustic piano. It's a Baldwin Grand that belonged to my grandmother, made in 1918. And I, I do what I can to keep it in tune. <laughs> and I basically ripped this from the YouTube video. So you're hearing a few minutes of my live, live-streamed, live-performed score for Steamboat Bill Jr. with Buster Keaton.
live in my living room and streamed out to the rest of the planet a couple of weeks ago in June, presented by the Cinema Arts Center. Yours truly playing for Buster Keaton's Steamboat Bill Jr. In terms of playing to Buster's singing, it's the same thing as the tango. I'm watching his mouth the whole time and watching his pantomime. So I stay in sync. And what I've trained myself to do, and sometimes I'm able to do this with physical action, is that I watch for the prepare. Mm. What you would call in music the pickup. The, and boom. So uh, if you want to sync up something with somebody grabbing a hammer, you watch the back of their arm. And as they get ready to grab the hammer, you see the arm move for it. And then you can bang. You can land it. It's not Mickey Mousing. I try not to do it like it's Mickey Mousing, but I try to make it make sense musically. And I take my cue from the score for modern times for a way a lot of that works. So it comes off looking like dance. So throughout the whole pantomime that Buster does, once he stops singing, I'm watching his hands. And he moves a little bit in beat, like an old Fleischer cartoon. But I am watching the prepare, the physical pickup note into the next thing so I can stay in time. Because he's not... 100% rock steady. There really aren't a lot of challenges technologically. The only real challenge for me is in my performance. One is I have to remind myself I'm playing in people's lap. Reminding myself that the audience for these live streamings is basically they're about as far from the piano as my wife Mana is standing by at the iPhone camera that's on a tripod. So I don't want to blow anybody watching out of the water too much unless it's a sequence that really requires it. The weird thing that I'm still getting used to is not seeing the audience and not interacting with them. This must be what early television was like. You know, people in a <laughs> hot it? studio somewhere just talking, especially Ernie Kovacs did, talking as if you were across the room from mm -hmm. him, having that kind of demeanor and just imagining that there is somebody there. In terms of the tech, you always hold your breath that something's going to freeze or lock up. And the first several go-rounds of working with the software had different kinds of hiccups. But I've gotten around it. The developers of the software, they've been great answering questions and fixing bugs. I figured it out. In the last episode, we talked about building up specific moments for Buster, where he makes ta-da moments or hero moments. And that came up in Steve yeah. Bell. It comes up every time I play for it, and I always try to do something with it. Because it's a moment that ought to get an applause break of some kind. What I found with the different Keaton films, some of them visually lend themselves to that and tell the audience, pow, this is it. Like with Spite Marriage, when he decks the guy on the boat. Also in college, he's moving laterally mm -hmm. through the shot and then pole vaulting up into the window. In Seven Chances, he's moving away from the camera in a straight line uh, away from us. Even though that's the big ta-da moment of that chase, it doesn't have the same punch. And in Steamboat Bill, we're at maybe a 30-degree angle to him at the steamboat, and he's grabbing ropes and pulling ropes and jumping around and pulling another rope, and then he moves over and pulls on another lever. And it doesn't have the same impact and so I always try to find different ways to have that applause break happen in the theater. The last time I played for the film in a the theater, I, I don't remember exactly what I did. This is what, what kills me. I've got to take notes. But I found something that really worked. People clapped for Buster. The key thing of that moment is it's not just a great piece of action, but that he is 
rescuing his father with whom he has been in contention for the entire film so it's a lot yeah. of emotional resolution around right that. right and, and it's the only film he it's his only film where where it isn't just about quote-unquote getting the girl he's proving himself to his father who's played by one of the great character actors of silent film and so that relationship is is really what the film is about it is a big moment you want it to land you know i don't want to push the audience into feeling something but at the same time you want it to resonate the live stream of Steamboat Bill Jr. went really well, and we're going to do another show through the Cinema Arts Center. But this is something I'm starting to offer to other art houses that I'm connected with. And if they, they don't take me up on it, which is fine, I can still do it on my own out of my living room. But there are a number of films from the silent film era that are in the public domain until the movie theaters open back up. The live stream live accompaniment is the closest thing you'll get to the real silent film experience, you know, because you're alone, but you know there is somebody on the other end of your screen playing live with you. I'm trying to offer this up to people as the calendar year 2020 winds on. So it's time for our frequently asked questions, and this week we frequently ask them all the way through the episode. Good heavens! And yes. we've been talking about this quite a bit, and it's the whole question, both pre-existing music and cue sheets that were published at the time the film was distributed. The cue sheet being a list of the action in the film and either suggestions or specifications for pieces. There are even books of generic music that can be cross-referenced in some cue sheets uh, are aware of this such and such book and you can you can use your big master book or you can use these suggestions they've put there. And we've talked about what was common practice at the time and so the question is how much does that guide you as an accompanist? Well, for my own sensibilities, I find that the cue sheets don't really hold up all that well for a couple of reasons. Some people like to work with the exact cue sheet exactly as published. I know when you go to hear Rick Benjamin and the Paragon Ragtime Orchestra, you're hearing them play the cue sheet exactly as published. But local conductors and organists and pianists would take the published cue sheet and pencil in their own ideas. The cue sheets tend to be a little repetitive and a character's motif will get used a lot. There may be what I call song title puns, where a popular song of the day is played because its title has something to do with what's happening on screen and nobody knows the song. The pun is gone, and besides doing a song title pun, calls your attention away from the film. The other thing I found is that each cue is held a lot longer than the dramatic moment may warrant. When I did a compiled score for Grandma's Boy, out of existing mood cues and then three or four themes that I created, I found that every time I felt, okay, I need to shift moods here, I would discover that I was cutting half of the piece out. A typical cue sheet for a feature film would have maybe 35 cues. My compiled score for Grandma's Boy has about 60 because I kept shifting and shifting and shifting. And, and as you were mentioning, if you watch a silent film with a Vitaphone score, a lot of times the mood cue will go on for another 40 seconds after the moment's mm -hmm. over. At the time, I'm sure it was fine for audiences, but our expectations of what film music is has changed. And it, it has something to do with the stopping and starting of film music in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. There's a really great book called After the Silence, 
S-I-L-E-N-T-S, written by Michael Slowick, who is a film professor at Wesleyan, that really discusses in great detail the various practices of musical underscore, or especially the lack thereof, throughout the 1930s. And when movie music underscore re-enters at some point in the mid to late 30s, it's a lot more like what we think of as film music. Mm -hmm. It has more to do with underscore, which you might find in opera or what became musical theater, than what was happening in the 1920s. That's the straddling you have to do as a film accompanist. You want it to sound like it's the 1920s. And so a lot of those cues are really good, but the scoring techniques don't really work. I was hired to create a book of those mood cues several years ago called The Music of the Silent Films, and it's 50 cues. There's two or three for each mood, and several of the composers are, are represented. In going through all of those, I played through several hundred of these to find uh, the 50 that I wound up using in the book. I got a flavor of what those cues sound like, what they smell like musically into my fingers. So sometimes I'll play something that sounds like one of those cues. And there's a few of them that I've learned that, that I'll use. Because of what I do being an improviser, it allows me to musically breathe with the ebb and flow of the dramatic action. And with mood cues, you're stuck with that mood. And depending on how much you want to shift back and forth, you can make that work. As part of the Arthur Kleiner presentation I did at MoMA in November 2019, one of the things we did, because he he used those cue sheets a lot. So I accompanied a biograph short, The Lone Dale Operator, using a lot of the mood cues the way Kleiner would have. What I've discovered is that a lot of these cues from the 1920s were used not only in radio, but in, in movies in the 1930s and 40s. And if you know the material well, every once in a while you're watching a movie from the 30s, you'll hear something, oh, that sounds like an old mood cue. We talked a little bit with Steamboat Bill Jr. about dancing around a referenced song. And I think there is some question of specific identified tangos in Four Horsemen. With Steamboat Bill, at a show, I absolutely play the Prisoner's Song. When it's me and an audience, and I don't have to clear anything, it's another story. When a piece of sheet music is shown, or a record label is shown and they put on the record, you have to play it, because, again, the audience is expecting to hear that. The craziest example of that is a film where, I, unfortunately, I didn't have a chance to screen a film ahead of time. The movie is The Green Goddess with George Arliss. And there's a scene where he's got a, a bunch of the other characters captive in his home somewhere. And he walks over to the Victrola and he takes out a record and he puts it on. And I'm playing and I'm waiting for the close-up of the label. It does not come. There is no close-up of the label. He cranks up the Victrola, puts the needle on, closes the lid. You see his head moving to the music and he's, he's looking at the people and they're looking at him. And I'm playing, I don't know what the hell I, I, I did. And I, I have no idea what he, what he put on. And, and then in a title card, he indicates, ah, the funeral march of a marionette. I thought, oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> so I immediately started playing it. But usually the language, the visual language is, here's what you're about mm -hmm. to hear. And then they play it. And I think I was talking to Philip Carley, who was going to be playing for this film at a festival. Maybe it was Porto None. And he wasn't going to have a chance to, to screen it ahead of time. And I said, Philip, when he puts on the record, it's a funeral <laughs> march from a marionette. And again, that's a piece that everybody knows from Alfred Hitchcock, if you know that show. 
it, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't because if you don't use the piece, somebody will go, why didn't you play that? And if you do play it, if you, and if it's something that's well-known, it has its own connotation, so, the audience has their own meaning for that. So you're gonna play, the original score... You know, you're going to play for Horseman, you're going to play a tango, but you don't want to play La Compercita. Which yeah, is now right. you don't something like because a people will think of Jack Lemmon and <laughs> they'll think of Jack Lemmon yeah. in a dress and they're out of the film. You have to strike a balance so that it does work. So if you have a question, and it doesn't have to be frequently asked, you could have been the only person in the world who thought up this question, but please do go to silentfilmmusic.com, go to the Contact Us page, and send us a question. We'd love to get some original questions. It's time for recommendations, and uh, I'll start off. We're posting this show on July 8, 2020, and the big talk among film buffs this week is the package from Kit Parker Films called Laurel and Hardy Definitive Restorations. It's 19 films, including the two of the major features, Way Out West and Sons of the Desert, in new restorations from, if not original camera negative, very pristine pre-print material, the best that's available. Most of these produced under the supervision of the uh, UCLA Restoration Group. To bring it relevant to this program, there is one silent title, The Restored Battle of the Century, with a new score. By Donald Sosin. Very nice score by Donald. Yeah, he's one of my favorite comedy accompanists. But all reports online are that it is quite spectacular looking. So that's the Laurel yeah. Hardy Definitive Restorations from Kit Parker Films. Ben, you've got a recommendation this time. Yeah, I'd like to recommend... A release from Kino Lorber of Fritz Lang's The Spiders. And this is something that I scored a bunch of years ago for them using uh, digital orchestral samples. The film is, is really unusual in that it, it is basically modeled on American serials. and even takes place in San Francisco, although it, the film is made in Germany. But to see this kind of a thriller film uh, come out of Fritz Lang and the film industry in Germany is, is really quite interesting. And it's a film that I'm very pleased with how the score came out. Working with these orchestral samples on a Kurzweil keyboard has samples of the Boston Symphony Orchestra on it. And I did a couple of scores with it, and The Spiders is one of them. And it's one I'm, I'm pleased with, and I know it, it came out on Blu-ray a couple of years ago, so... Uh, do take a look out for The Spiders. And a lot of bang for your uh, buck. Directed by Fritz Lang. it's uh, almost yeah. three hours. It's, it's, it's a two-parter, yeah. I think. One quick programming note before we sign off. It's summertime and the living is easy. So our next episode, episode 39, will be posting four weeks from now on August 5th. So we'll look for you then. Well, thanks for listening. This was episode 38 of the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent films. I am, as always, your host and accompanist, Ben Modell, and I'm joined, as I have been for the last bunch of episodes and going forward, 
by my co-host and co-producer, Kerr Lockhart. Everybody be well. And we thank you for listening. Write us a review. Uh, Go to Apple Podcasts. Give us five, six, seven, eight, nine stars and say you can't live on in your life without listening to this podcast. <laughs> or just say something. Or nice. Then, but, but do, do, put, do, yeah, do say something about it. And we thank you for listening. And until next time, I'll be seeing you.